For some of you who are probably visiting from out of town, you were probably expecting to see the pastor in a suit and tie. Well, that's just not Pastor Allen. But one of the things I so love about God is that God looks on the inside and not the outside. And I started thinking this week about all the things that I love about God, and I came all the way down to the resurrection. What Jesus Christ did in his death, burial, and resurrection, I thought to myself, I love Easter. And the reason I love Easter is because it is a time to celebrate Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But it's not the only time that we celebrate it. In fact, every time we have communion, we're celebrating and appropriating what Christ has done for us. The bread represents the body of Christ, which was broken for us. And the wine represents Christ's blood, which was shed for us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 29, Paul told us to make a distinction between the body and the blood. Why? Because Jesus did more than just die for us. He also suffered for our sake. That's why here at Cornerstone Fellowship, when we're participating in communion, we don't just place the bread in our mouth. We always break it first. Because that symbolizes the suffering that Jesus endured on our behalf. And sometimes we tend to forget that, and we only focus on his death, which is a big mistake. Because everything that Jesus suffered was for a specific purpose. Jesus was mocked, beaten, and spit upon so that we might have favor with men. 
He was scourged, and the scriptures say that by his stripes we are healed. He was stripped of his possessions and made poor so that we might be made rich. He was crowned with thorns so we might have dominion. He was pierced in the side so that we might have victory over afflictions. He was nailed to the cross, and he became a curse so that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. And every time we have communion, we're to appropriate what Christ has done for us. So this morning, I want to take you through the sequence of events that occurred from the time that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane to the moment that he was resurrected. Now, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that while Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the temple guards came and they arrested him. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. I'm going to read verses 47 through 50. And just let me tell you right up front, we're going to be going through a lot of scripture this morning. It says, And while he yet spoke, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves, from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now, verse 47 says that this group came from the chief priest and the elders, which means that the temple guards were the ones that came to arrest Jesus. And they were acting on the authority of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Now, at that point, Jesus was arrested, but he wasn't being abused. He was simply taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to be interrogated by him and the members of the Sanhedrin. Now, if you've seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, it shows that from the very beginning, as soon as they arrested him, they started abusing Jesus. So you probably have that impression, but that's not the case. Let me show you a movie clip from that. So most people think that Jesus started being abused immediately after he was arrested, but people, it didn't happen that way. Jesus wasn't abused until Caiaphas accused him of blasphemy. And it was at that point that he really began to suffer. And I'll explain why in just a little bit. So after Jesus was arrested, he was taken to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. And that's where the Sanhedrin met in order to interrogate him. Now, if you're a curious person, you're probably wondering why in the world they took him to Caiaphas' home rather than to the meeting hall where the Sanhedrin normally met, which was known as the Hall of Hewn Stones. Well, the reason Jesus wasn't taken to the Hall of the Hewn Stones was because it was the preparation day for the Feast of Passover. And the chief priest and the other priests who were members of the Sanhedrin didn't want to defile themselves. And had they brought Jesus into their midst, they would have defiled themselves, at least in their mind. So they brought him to Caiaphas' home, which was specifically designed to allow the high priest and the members of the Sanhedrin to interrogate a prisoner without coming into physical contact with him. You see, the chief priest's home actually had a basement 
that was carved out of stone with holding cells in it. And they also had carved a hole in the floor, the very first floor, to allow a person to look down into the basement. And the whole purpose of this was to allow the chief priests and the other priests to interrogate sinners on holy days without contaminating themselves, without being in the same room with sinners. Because in their minds that would have defiled themselves and they wouldn't have been able to partake of the holy days. That's why Jesus was taken to Caiaphas' home instead of the meeting hall where the Sanhedrin normally met. Turn to Matthew chapter 26 verses 57 through 58. Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas the high priest where the teachers of the religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile Peter followed him at a distance and he came to the high priest courtyard. So Jesus was brought to a room in the basement that was directly underneath this hole in the floor. And if you go to Jerusalem to this day you'll go to Caiaphas' home. There's a church that's sitting on the spot, and the, way, and the reason they know it's the home of Caiaphas is because there's a hole in the floor, and there's this basement underneath with all of these holding cells. So you can actually stand on the floor where the high priest was and where the members of the Sanhedrin were, and you can look down where they looked down to see where Jesus actually stood. And so they looked down, and they were able to interrogate him. Now, you need to understand that this was not a fair trial. In fact, they had already predetermined that Jesus was guilty and they were going to execute him. So all they really needed to do was to charge him with a crime that was worthy of death, that carried the death penalty, and then find two people who were willing to testify against him. They didn't care whether it was true or not. You see, they had one goal and one goal only, and that was to kill Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verse number 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. And what's funny is they couldn't find anything to convict Jesus of. Oh, there were a lot of people who made false accusations against him. But under the Jewish law, in cases of capital punishment, it takes two witnesses to convict a person. Numbers chapter 35, verse number 30 says, No one may be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. They couldn't find two people whose stories matched until finally two people came forward and this was their accusation against Jesus. He said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. Look at Matthew chapter 26 verses 60 through 61. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Why? Because they contradicted each other's. Their stories didn't match. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So when this specific accusation was made against Jesus, Caiaphas asked him to defend himself. But Jesus said nothing. So out of frustration, Caiaphas demanded that Jesus answer under oath. Look at verses 62 and 63. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said unto him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. The Greek word there is Christos. It means the anointed one. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. So Jesus was obligated under Jewish law to answer the high priest and to answer truthfully. So Jesus did answer him. And of course, being a sinless person, being perfect, of course he answered truthfully. Verse 64, yes, 
It is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when Jesus said that, Caiaphas ripped his priestly garments and he screamed, Blasphemy! Look at verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy! Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. Now, this is a very, very important detail that the majority of us just kind of gloss over. We don't realize the significance of what happened here. And let me explain why this is so important. Under the Jewish law, the high priest was commanded to never, ever tear his priestly garments under any circumstances. Turn to Leviticus chapter 21, verse number 10. The high priest has the highest rank of all the priests. The anointing oil has been poured upon his head, and he has been ordained to wear the priestly garments. He must never leave his hair uncombed or tear his clothing. If you remember, Aaron's son offered strange fire to the Lord, and they were consumed. And yet Moses ran and he told Aaron, you cannot tear your clothes. You cannot dress in sackcloth and ashes. You are the high priest. You must never defile yourselves. So when Caiaphas tore his clothes, not only did he break the Mosaic law, but he also forfeited his right to be the high priest, which allowed God to choose his successor. So Jesus was able to legally step into the position of the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which was all prophesied in the book of Psalms. So at that point, Jesus could legally offer himself as a sacrifice not only for our sin, but the sin of the world. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 14 through 18. What I mean is, our Lord came from the tribe of Judah. And Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. This change has been made very clear since a different priest, who was like Melchizedek, has appeared. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside. So when Caiaphas tore his clothes, Jesus was able to legally step into the position of the high priest and offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin. And that's when the suffering began, not before. All of the suffering before he actually went into the position of the high priest would have been in vain. And I want you to understand, Jesus could have at any time walked through the midst of him as he had done many times before. But Jesus didn't do that. So when he entered into this position of the high priest, that's when the suffering began. And it was the temple police that began the abuse. They spit in his face. And if you read the King James Version, it says they buffeted him. Now let's be honest, we don't talk that way. Some of you men, when you were younger, you got into fights with your friends and some of your enemies. And you didn't go home and say, boy, I buffeted him good. No. The word buffet actually means, means to hit with a closed fist. It means to punch. So they were punching him. And the scripture says they were also slapping him in order to show their disdain for him. Look at Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read verses 65 through 68. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy. 
Why do we need other witnesses? You have heard, you have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then, and not until then, they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fist. And some slapping, jeering, said, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? Now, the Jews did not have the authority to execute people. That's why they had to take him to Pilate. You see, Pilate was the Roman governor at the time, and he's the only one who had the authority to execute people in the province of Judea. But the religious leaders were not going to wake Pilate up in the middle of the night because they didn't want to irritate him. Not only that, they had some plotting to do, which we'll look at in a minute. So what they did is they waited until the morning, until the sun came up. And during that time, the temple police continued to beat Jesus, which means that he probably had to endure three to four hours of being beat by the temple guards. Look at Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. So while they were waiting for the morning to come, they were plotting on how they could manipulate Pilate to execute Jesus. So let me explain how they manipulated Pilate to get what they wanted. As I said, the Jews did not have the authority to execute people. So each person that was convicted by the Sanhedrin and sentenced to death had to be passed on to the Roman governor in order for him to approve it. Now, normally, the Roman governor would approve it without question. But if he felt inclined to hear the case, he would summon the accused and the accusers, and he would preside over the case. If he reversed the verdict, then the condemned person was acquitted, and the Sanhedrin were powerless to do anything about it. If he decided to hear the case, and he confirmed their decision, then the accused suffered the Romans' form of execution which was different than the Jews' method of execution. You see, the Jews did not crucify people. They executed people in one of four ways. Stoning, which was the most common. Burning, decapitation, and strangulation. But as I said, stoning was the most common. And of course, we know the story. Pilate decided to hear the case, so Jesus had to suffer the Romans' form of execution, which had all been prophesied hundreds of years before. Before anyone had ever heard of crucifixion, the Scriptures prophesied that the Messiah would be crucified. And everything happened just as the Scripture said they would. Now, Roman law permitted prisoners three chances to defend themselves. If a prisoner passed up those three chances to speak in his own defense, he would automatically be found guilty. In Matthew chapter 27, verse number 11, Jesus passed up his first chance. In verse number 12, he passed up his second chance. In verse number 14, he passed up his third and final chance to defend himself. Therefore, under Roman law, Jesus was automatically declared guilty. That's why Pilate was so dumbfounded by Jesus' silence and his refusal to defend himself. Basically, what Jesus was doing by not defending himself was condemning himself. And he was saying, I'm willing to be crucified. But that's exactly what Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would do. Isaiah 53, verse number 7 says, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. 
So as you can see, and when you understand the Roman law at the time, you know that they did not take Jesus' life. As God's high priest, he willingly offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. People, that's why he didn't open his mouth to defend himself. He could have defended himself. He could have gotten off, but he understood that he needed to be crucified. He understood that that was the means by which he would pay for the sins of the world. But even though he didn't open his mouth to defend himself, Pilate still knew that he wasn't guilty. Pilate knew that he was innocent, but what could he do? Since Jesus chose not to defend himself, the Roman law declared that he was guilty. So what did Pilate do? Well, contrary to what most people think, Pilate actually looked for a loophole. And as he probed deeper into the case, what he found out was Jesus was a Galilean. He came from the province of Galilee. And technically, Galilee was under the jurisdiction of Herod, who just happened to be in Jerusalem at the time because it was the Feast of Passover. So what did Pilate do? He sent Jesus to Herod. However, it didn't take Herod long to realize that it was not to his advantage that he'd be ticking off the Jews if he presided over this particular case. So after a few brief questions, he said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to do this. You're going back to Pilate. And back again to Pilate, he went. Now, Pilate was, was in a position that he didn't want to be in. He knew that Jesus was innocent. But the high priest and the Sanhedrin had him in a precarious position. According to Luke chapter 23, verse number 2, the accusations against Jesus were threefold. Let's read verse number 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Jesus was being accused of three things. Number one, that he had perverted the whole nation. Now, people, this was a religious charge. It had nothing to do with Rome, so Pilate could have cared less about that charge. The second charge against him was that he had taught the people not to pay taxes to Rome, which was just an outright lie. Because if you remember the ministry of Jesus, a lawyer came and he was trying to tempt Jesus, trick Jesus. And he says, it's unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And of course, we remember the stories. He said, let me have a coin. And he took the coin and said, who's on this? And they said, Caesar. He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. So that was a false accusation. And the last charge against Jesus was that he claimed to be a king. As I said before, Pilate believed Jesus to be innocent of all three charges. But the Sanhedrin had him in a very precarious position. And they had carefully planned this. This is what they had been plotting in the early morning hours while they were waiting for the sun to come up. So Pilate was in this no-win situation. And let me explain why. If Pilate let Jesus go, the Sanhedrin could charge him with being unfaithful to the Roman Empire because he refused to crucify a man who claimed to be a a rival king to the Roman emperor. Look in John chapter 19, verse number 12. Then Pilate tried to release him, talking about Jesus. But the Jewish leader shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. So what they were doing is they were basically telling Pilate, If you don't crucify him, we'll bring charges against you in Rome. 
We'll tell Caesar that you permitted a rival king to live and you'll be charged with treason and you'll be convicted. But at the same time, if Pilate didn't let Jesus go, he would be executing an innocent man. So Pilate tried to do the next best thing. He tried to punish Jesus without executing him. Look at Luke chapter 23, verses 14 through 16. And he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revoke. I've examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence, and I find him to be innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion, and he sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. And when he said that, the people went nuts. They started chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Look at Luke chapter 23, verses 20 through 24. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. Now, every person that was crucified by the Roman Empire went through the same basic steps. The very first thing they did was they scourged you. In Roman times, scourging was one of the most feared forms of of uh, punishment. The instrument they used to scourge a person was referred to as a flagrum. Now, they also referred to it as a cat of nine tails because it was made in various forms, but the most common type had nine leather straps. That's why they referred to it as a cat of nine tails. And on the end of each strap was a piece of metal. Now, every once in a while it would be bone or it would be glass, but the most common had pieces of metal. And at the end of each piece of metal, was there, there was a little hook. And the purpose of that little hook was to dig deep into the flesh so that it could rip out blood vessels, nerves, muscles, and skin when the flagrum was jerked back. Now, when a person was scourged, it created a medical condition called splinting. The con- that condition forces a person to take smaller breaths because each breath creates shooting pain. And the larger the breath the greater the pain. So when a person was being scourged, he did his best to try and not breathe, just to take the smallest breaths as he could. Not only that, but those who were scourged usually had at least one eye put out. And that's because as they were flogging and they would get into it, invariably one of those straps would come across the face and one of those little hooks would catch the eye. And when they jerked it back, it would literally pull the eye out of the socket. It wasn't uncommon also for a person's lungs to be lacerated, badly bruised, and even collapsed. Certain historians tell us that after scourging, there were times when you could literally see the vertebrae, the backbone of a person. It was bare before you. Now, depending upon the severity of the beating, a human being could be unrecognizable. And again, this was prophesied in the book of Isaiah Chapter 52, verse number 14, it says, Many were amazed when they saw him, beaten and bloodied, so disfigured one would scarcely know he was a person. Now, I'm going to illustrate the procedure that they would use. 
This is called a scourging post. The way that they created a scourging post in every city that was under the Roman Empire had a scourging post. As they would go out and they would find a pretty big tree. And they would cut the tree down and from the trunk they would cut an eight foot piece. And then they would go to wherever the center of the court was where the Roman soldiers usually were stationed. And in the middle of that courtyard they would dig a six foot hole. And then they would drop this tree trunk down into it. And then they would make sure that it was secured by putting rocks in it and pushing all those rocks down so you couldn't move it. Now, every once in a while, they went a little bit further. And they would actually carve an eight-foot piece of stone and do the very same thing. Now, once they had put this and set it in place, they would actually take a piece of metal and they would band it all the way around. And from that piece of metal, they would drill out a hole and a bar went all the way through. And coming up from a vertical position attached to that bar would come an eye bolt in which they would put shackles there. Then they would bring the prisoner here and they would shackle his wrist. The purpose of that is so that he could not defend himself and he couldn't move. Now, the only problem is when a prisoner is shackled to these, to these, he would have the tendency to want to stand up. And the reason he would want to do that is because they could not put the pressure on this that they wanted by bringing it down upon his back. So the very first lick always went to the hamstrings. They would take the cat of nine tails. The Roman soldier would walk up after he was shackled, and the first thing he would do is he would hit him on the back of the legs. Involuntarily, the man would sink to his knees. At that point, he was in the position that they wanted because two Roman soldiers always carried this out. A person who was right-handed and a person who was left-handed. And they basically would take their turns striking him. And they would get into it to the point where it would come across the face, it would be across the buttocks, it would be across the shoulders, the back, whatever. Now, let me show you what a cat of nine tails will do because this is a very good replica of what a cat of nine tails look like. What I was going to do, but my wife talked me out of this, it was I I was going to slaughter a hog. And I was going to bring that hog and tie it up on stage and I was going to have two guys come to work on it. Now you need to understand, I'm not a strong man. I'm kind of a weak man. So what you're going to see me do is nothing like what soldiers would do because they took great pride in this and they took great pride in being strong. But because I can't use a hog, I'm going to use a piece of sheet metal and show you what takes place when they do this. And again, I don't hit very hard. Now, you probably can't see this, but after the service, come on up here. What you'll notice is that there are little hoes all in the sheet metal. And I kind of ground this off to make sure that it wouldn't hook because I'm not strong enough to pull this back. But these little pieces of metal would hook so that when it went inside, it literally would attach itself so that when you pulled it back, you could pull out muscle, nerves, blood vessels. Now, after the condemned person was scourged, he was then turned over to the Roman soldiers to be humiliated in whatever sadistic way they saw fit. And because Jesus was accused of being a king, what they chose to do was to mock him. Look in Matthew chapter 27, verses 28 through 30. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They made a crown of long, sharp thorns 
and put it on his head. And they placed a stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery, yelling, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and beat him on the head with it. Now, most people think that this was just a form of humiliation. But it was much more than humiliation. It was also very painful. You see, the sharp thorns that they used to make this crown came from a plant that botanists refer to as the Syrian Christ thorn. The thorns from this plant are very long. They're about two inches in length. They're sharp and they're very stout. Now, the reason this is important is because the most of the thorns that we see today, they're very pliable. So even though they will prick you, they also bend. But the, but the thorns from the Syrian Christ thorn is very stout. It does not bend. And the pain that is, that is uh, created when this begins to dig into the flesh is very excruciating. Now, there are two branches of nerves that actually go up to the head. And from those two major branches, thousands of nerve endings weave themselves through the head and the face. And continual irritation of those nerves will cause severe stabbing pain. A good example of this is a toothache. How many of you ever had a toothache? It can get so bad it's like it's excruciating. But the reason it's so painful is is because it goes through the trigeminal nerve, which is one of the main branches. So when they took the stick and they began to beat Jesus over the head with it, what they were doing is they were driving these thorns deeper into his flesh. And because of the two major branches of nerves, it was almost as if he was receiving an electric shock or he was being touched with a hot poker. Now, let me demonstrate what they did. It says that they took a stick, but if you look at that in the original language, that word is translated from the Greek word kalamon. Kalamon refers to a weed. A weed is what we would refer to as a cane pole. Now, this is an immature plant. What they would have chosen is something that was probably an inch and a half thick, kind of, kind of like bamboo. But anyways, what they did is they would take one of these sticks and they would break it. And then they would peel this off, and this became the scepter. And so when they took this scarlet robe and put it around him, he's already bloody from head to toe. They put this scarlet robe around him, and it starts to stick to his skin. Then they take a crown of thorns, and of course, I'm not going to use the Syrian Christ thorn because that would hurt me. But they took this and they jammed it upon his head. And then they gave him the scepter and they started making fun of him. Oh, king. And then they grabbed the scepter from his head and they started hitting him on the head with it. And they started driving that crown of thorns deep into his flesh. And every time those thorns hit, it was like being electrocuted. It was like having a big shock to your system. Imagine if you would, not just one toothache, but 10 to 15 of them. Now, the Gospel of John reveals something interesting. It reveals that Pilate tried to release Jesus one last time. So what Pilate did is he paraded him out in front of the Jews. Here Jesus is, and he's so bloody, his face is swollen to the point, it's hard to even tell that he's human. The ears you can't even see. His his hair is just matted with blood. And now you can see with this scarlet robe on him that it's soaked with blood and it's sticking to him. And he has this crown of thorns. And the reason that Pilate did that is because he was trying to play upon the sympathy of the Jews. What he was hoping was that the Jews would say, okay, 
He's had enough. Let's let him go. But the Jews wouldn't budge. So Pilate had no choice but to crucify him. So they took him to a place called Golgotha. Golgotha is the place of the school. Now, Jesus was forced to carry the cross. And most of us have seen pictures where they're showing Jesus with the total cross, but that wasn't the case, people. In every Roman city or every city that was under the Roman Empire, outside of the city walls, they always had these vertical poles. They were there to crucify people because that was the common form of execution. So Jerusalem always had these vertical posts there. So all that Jesus had to actually carry was the horizontal pole. So he had to carry this up to a point where he was so exhausted, no longer had the strength, and he fell. And they compelled Simon the Cyrene to come and pick it up and carry it the rest of the way. When they get to that place, they throw Jesus down. Now, there are five Roman soldiers that make up the crucifixion team. Two of the soldiers each grabbed a rope, and they tied it around each wrist, and they pulled on it so tightly that normally it would pull their joints out of place. They would dislocate their shoulders. And they'd pull them back on that horizontal beam. Now, normally when they were doing that, the person who, who was being crucified would try to resist. So what he would do is he would ball his hands up, into a fist to try and pull back. And that's exactly what they wanted. And the reason they wanted that is because they would take these six-inch nails, spikes, and where they wanted to put the nail was between the pinky and the ring finger. When a person actually made the fist, that told them where to put the spike. Because if you put the spike too far up, it can't hold the weight in the person's hands. His weight would literally just be able to pull through and they would fall to the ground. So what they did was they took the spike and they put it between the pinky and the ring finger. And one of the other Roman soldiers would pound that in. And where it's placed would be able to hold up to almost 300 pounds. If you were over that, they also tied your wrist. If you were under that, they just used the spikes. Then they would also come in and host him up and and attach the horizontal piece, then they would push the legs up. And when they pushed the legs up, because they wanted a little bit of, of room for that person to have them bent, they would take a spike and they would drive it into each one of the feet. Now, there are times when they did things differently. In fact, they got pretty creative. Sometimes they would, they would turn their feet sideways and go through uh, the heels, but that was usually later than the time that Christ lived. During Christ's time, they normally would drive a six-inch spike through both of the feet. Now, here's the interesting thing. Once he was up in that position, from hanging down, he couldn't breathe. He couldn't get a breath. There was too much pressure upon the lungs. It would be like an elephant sitting on your chest. So the only way that you could get a breath was literally to push up with your feet and to arch your back. When you did that, that allowed your lungs to be able to take in air. The only problem with doing that is you were pushing up against the spike in your feet, which caused excruciating pain from the bottom of your toes all the way to the top of your head. So as soon as you got that breath, you'd have to fall back down. So literally, you would see these men going back and forth, pushing themselves up and coming and hanging down. Pushing themselves up and coming back down. Now, Jesus was crucified on the day that was referred to as the preparation day. That means that Jesus was crucified on the day before Passover. 
Now, why did they call it the preparation day? Because when it was time for Passover, you could not work. It was the same as a Sabbath. Therefore, you could not slaughter the lamb. You could not prepare the meal. So the day before Passover, that's when you took your lambs to the temple mount. The priest would slaughter it. You would then take it home and prepare the Passover meal. So at the very same time that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered is the very time that Jesus was being crucified. That is why he is our Passover lamb. Now, you need to understand that the Jews did not reckon time the way that we do. We reckon a day to be from midnight to midnight. You know, tonight, if you, if you stay up late, it's going to come to 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, but at 12.01, a new day begins. The Jews do not reckon days in that manner. They reckon days from sundown, when the sun sets, to sundown. Does that make sense? And the, and the Jewish law said that no man could be hanging on a tree because cursed is the man that does on a holy day, on a feast day. So that meant by Jewish law, all of those people who were hanging on the cross had to be off of the cross two hours before sunset. That would give the family enough time to prepare their bodies and put it in the tomb. They couldn't prepare it uh, the way they really needed to, but it gave them that just to prepare as quickly as possible. They could come back later, but they could prepare the body, put it in the tomb. But here's the problem. That contradicted Roman law. The Roman law states that no man can come down from a cross until he's dead. So, to appease the Jews, the Romans worked out a system. And the system was, when we get to the point where we're getting close to that two hours before sundown, if they're not dead on the cross then, they would bring out a sledgehammer or a 65-pound uh, bar. And then what they would do is they would break both legs. And the purpose of breaking both legs is to keep them from being able to push up. And when they couldn't push up, they would die of asphyxiation. Now, the interesting thing is, when they came to Jesus, Jesus was already dead. Now, remember, according to Roman law, you cannot come off the cross unless you're dead. So they had to verify it. Some of you have heard a thing called the swoon theory. That's garbage. The Romans would have never allowed that. So when they came to Jesus and it looked like he was no longer breathing, he was dead. They did not break his legs. In fact, what's interesting is that was what was prophesied. They would not break any of his bones. They took a spear. And if you notice, this is a great replica of a Roman spear. And the reason it is, if you'll notice this little piece here, the purpose of this is so when you're fighting, if someone is able to block your spear with their sword, the sword won't run down it and slice off your fingers. So they took their sword, they placed it underneath the ribcage, and then they thrust it up into the heart. Now because Jesus was dead, fluid had started collecting in the lungs and around the heart. So when they pierced his heart and they pulled the spear out, out came water and out came blood. And they knew that Jesus was dead. The heart had been pierced and water came out. At that point, they took his body off of the cross. They prepared it as quickly as they could. And they buried it 
in a tomb. But his soul went to hell to pay for our sins. And when every sin was paid for, past, present, and future, God looked into hell and he saw a soul that had never sinned. And according to Leviticus chapter 18, verse number 5, the man that is righteous, the man that has never sinned, the man that has kept the law completely will live. So God said, live! And Jesus came alive. Now you need to understand why Jesus had to die for us. Some people said, well, you know, I'll pay for my own sins. The only problem with that is God is a just God. That means that God must punish sin, and the punishment for sin is death. And he must reward righteousness, because a just person does that. What is the reward for righteousness? To live. The only problem is, if we died for our own sins, we could pay for them, but we could never be resurrected because none of us are righteous No, not one. But when Jesus came, he came to enter into a covenant with us. And the covenant of marriage is patterned after the covenant between Christ and the church. And when you get married, the Bible says you become one. When I marry Lisa, we became one. What's mine is hers and what's hers is her. No. What's mine is hers and what's hers is mine. We're one. When Jesus came and he covenanted with us, What was ours became his, and what was ours, sin. And now we're one with him, and he went to hell. He paid for our sins. And Paul says it this way, we are crucified with Christ. We weren't there on the cross, but our spirit was in him. And he was down there paying for our sins, and when all of our sins were paid for, God looked into into hell, and he saw so that it had never sinned. He saw so that it had kept the law forever. Jesus never sinned even in being made our sin. How could he do that? Well, basically, the two greatest commandments of the law are these. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus had always kept the law, but he also fulfilled these two greatest commandments, which all the other laws hang upon. He loved God. And he was willing to die because that's what God wanted. God wanted him to offer himself as a sacrifice. So he said, God, nevertheless, not not my will, but yours. But also, he loved his neighbor as himself. The greatest love that a person can have is to die for that person. So he loved God by offering himself, and he loved us by dying for our sin. So when God looked down into hell... When all of our sins were paid, he saw so that it never sinned. And he was able, according to Leviticus 18.5, resurrect him. And because we are one with Jesus, our sins have been paid through him. And we are now made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But here's the problem. If you're here today and you don't receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, in essence, what you're doing is you're telling God, I don't need Jesus, I'll pay for my own. And one day... You'll stand before God. And he'll say, you've not received my free gift of eternal life. You want to pay for your own sins? Be gone. And you'll be cast into a lake of fire. But you'll never be 
rescued from that. You'll never be raised from the dead because you are not righteous. What's the difference between me and you? I'm depending upon Christ's righteousness. Now, if you're here this morning, we can change everything. We can make it where your sins are forgiven. And when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ Jesus.